encouraging brothers and sisters. Really, it sounded, it sounded good to sing with you. We are continuing in Matthew chapter 23 this morning. Matthew chapter 23. And if you were expecting a major uh, Advent or Christmas sermon, I, I suppose I apologize there, but um, I believe you'll, you'll find it relevant either way. Matthew chapter 23 brings us to the beginning of a chapter that is focused on calling out and condemning those who are in authority over the Jews. It comes at a time when Jesus has been in the temple declaring good things and thwarting the, uh, thwarting the accusations and traps of those who had come to ensnare him and declaring the, uh, the righteousness of God. But as we come to this section, it it turns sharply as Jesus now begins first to warn his disciples in the crowds and then to call out the Pharisees. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Jesus, we ask as we come to look at your words, to see what you would have for us in them, that you would come with power to deliver them to our hearts and to our minds. We ask, I ask that you would protect this assembly, your people, from any abuse of my own mouth in declaring your truth this morning, but that they would honor your word as highly esteemed, that they would give all acknowledgement and devotion and worship to you, the one who has given these words. I ask that you would fill us, Lord, with your spirit to be able to perceive in them the truths that are delivered, to cause to stir in us a, a, a groaning, a longing for your authority, for your leadership. We ask that you would plant in us a, a hope that the government, the government is promised to rest upon your shoulders in the new heaven and the new earth, Lord. Help us now, I pray, in your name. Amen. Well, since by God's providence I have my notes with me this week, I'm going to try to stick to an outline, and I'm going to be a little bit more upfront about the points in hopes that those who like to take notes can, and those who just have more uh, linear minds than I do will be able to follow along. So this morning, we're going to uh, track with five, five things, and I I wish that were fewer, but really the first one is an introduction, and the last one is a closing. But five things. There's, there's a crisis, there's a warning, then there's an indictment. Jesus calls out the, the error. There's a new paradigm given, or a better, a better authority shown, and there is hope given. So first, a crisis, a warning, an indictment, a new paradigm, and a hope at the end of chapter 22, Jesus has shown his utter command over the law and over the authorities that were there. The accusations that were brought, the attempts to ensnare Jesus, each one has been not only, um, not only confronted and thwarted, but has also been turned back again upon the hands of the one who laid the snare. 
the scribes and the Pharisees having brought their best and brightest to Jesus in order to condemn his ministry before the people, they are the ones who have been caught in their own snares. And so perhaps if you look at this, it's helpful to think about the crowds as they listen. Here are the scribes and the Pharisees, the ones who are um, to be the upholders of the law and the, the most holy of them. It's been said, if only two people were to go to heaven, one of them would be a Pharisee. These are the, these are the people who are put in front of the eyes of the crowds and of the disciples. And before their own face, Jesus has come and he has shown them the utter hypocrisy, the utter frailty of their authority and the feeble um, their feeble ability to bring the law to the people. And so there is a crisis at this moment as the crowds stand there and they look and see that those who are in authority over them have no right to be. Those who declare to them the Scriptures, those who rule over them and judge them have no ability to do so rightly. And so it's upon this that Jesus then turns his attention to the crowds and to the disciples. And he's, he's answering the, uh, the question, how is a temple-going Israelite or a disciple of Jesus to respond to such Jewish leadership? How are they to look at that their leaders, though they are ignorant, and the very law they claimed to know has been shown to... Um, be more capably handled by Jesus than them, how are they to respond to this authority? Or for you, brothers and sisters, you might ask this question or apply it to your heart in this way. Now that Jesus has come and He is reigning and ruling over your heart and your conscience today, while He is seated as the supreme authority in your mind and in your life, nevertheless, you, brothers and sisters, all of us are under to one extent or another, certain authorities. If you are a child, whether you're one or five or ten or fifteen, you are under your parents' authority. If you are a parent, you are under, doubtless, the the authority of those at your workplace and, and the government. All of us, being under authority to one extent or another, are faced with the fact that Christ is the supreme authority and nevertheless, we are here under certain authorities and those appointed by God. How is a Christian to understand authority? And what ought Christian authority to look like? What does Jesus say to those who are under authority? How is he sensitive to their consciences? What does Jesus say to those with authority, to those who ought to be representing faithfully the Word of God? Consider these things with me, brothers and sisters. There's a crisis of authority. And here, Jesus responds in this way. Let's read, starting in verse 1 of chapter 23, and we'll be getting through verse 12 today if the Lord tarries. When Jesus said to the crowd, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but do not the works they do. For they preach but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, 
For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats at the, in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And just to begin the next part, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. The first thing we see, then, is Jesus placing before the eyes of the people the reality that the scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. It was given to the people to be ruled by the priests of the nation. If you recall in the law, and I apologize, I would turn you there, and I, I failed to write down the reference, so I won't, uh, I won't uh, jostle us through the text, but you remember in the law, when it was given, if there was a dispute that was to come up, the people were to bring it to the priests. If there was a question of discerning the law, they were to bring it to the priests. And the priests were to give instruction as to how to live and discern between the people. There was an authority given to the priests. Now, some have wondered whether or not this authority that the scribes and Pharisees have claimed was somewhat of an authority taken to themselves. And I, I think we would agree to that to some extent. But, but we'll get there in a moment. First, we want to see that Jesus recognizes that the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. They hold an office of authority to, to, uh, to administer the, the law, to declare what is right and wrong to the people. And here, Jesus comes and says to do whatever they say. Now, if you know the, the story of the chief priests and the, and the elders, you know the Gospels and their declaration of their wrongs has already been made clear to us in Matthew. I think chief among these would stand out Matthew 15, where Jesus says that he condemns them for declaring as the commandments of God the traditions of men. That is, they have abused their authority and said, God hath said you must do, and it, all it was was a tradition of men. They had bound people's consciences to do many, many things which they ought not have done. And so there's a question that comes to our mind. Jesus, when you say do whatever they say, do you really mean do whatever they say? All things? Is this an exact obedience? And I, I would say to you that that is not precisely what Jesus is saying. He is saying that they sit in Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they say. And I, I would take this to mean, insofar as they sit in Moses' seat, insofar as they declare to you the word of God, insofar as they are author giving you the, their authority rightly and properly to say what is righteous and what is unholy, do and observe all that they say. Insofar as they are upholding the word of God, submit to the authority that God has put over you. And this, I, I take to be the meaning or the sense of what Jesus is saying here. Not that the uh, obedience that Jesus is commanding is absolute and unqualified, for that would lead to much 
much sin, would it not? But here Jesus is saying, first and foremost, insofar as they sit on Moses' seat, do and observe what they say. Jesus here upholds the law of God. He upholds the righteousness of God. And we, we should not be surprised by this. Jesus has been constant and um, consistent in saying he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to uphold it. So Jesus, in keeping with his ministry, here does not tell the people, therefore, reject them. He does not say, notice the difference here. This um, This is not Jesus saying, don't listen to them, just listen to the law. This is Jesus saying, Observe what they tell you as it comes from their mouth. But notice, he makes a distinction between them and their office. You see that, right? Because he is going to say, but do not do what they do. The rest of this chapter is given to calling out their error. But he makes a distinction between the person, the Pharisee, the one who is a hypocrite, the one who is... Um, doing what ought not to be done and is commanding at times the traditions of men as if it were a commandment of God. He makes a distinction between that and the office which they hold, the seat of Moses. And so it's upon this basis that he says, do what they say. But then he says, do not emulate them or walk in their footsteps or become their disciples. Right? Do not the works that they do. And in this one thing, Jesus, he is, he is cutting the cord or liberating the conscience. He is rendering the true authority of these men worthless. They become a shell, merely, merely sitting in a position, but with no character, no embodiment of that which they declaim. They are condemning themselves as they sit there. Now, let this be a, be a lesson to each one of us, those of us who have authority. The greater authority given is not merely the authority to say with your mouth, but the authority which is given by example, to live out what is true, to demonstrate that you also are one under authority. Think of commanding your, your children or your employees or your family as, the, as you may babysit or as you may come in contact with those who you have authority over, consider the difference between saying one thing and doing another and saying one thing and doing the same. Which has the greater authority over the heart and mind of the person who would be led in the truth? Truly, it's the authority of example. But here Jesus says, You are not to follow the example of the Pharisees. You are not to follow the example of the authority placed over you. Brothers and sisters, as disciples of Jesus Christ, you are not to follow the example of evil, hypocritical men. Regardless of their position, regardless of their rank, regardless of their authority, if their example is sin, you do not have to follow them. Though you submit to their office, Though they remain your president, though they remain your governor, though they remain your mayor and your boss and your dad and your mom, if their example, their way of life is one of hypocrisy and sin and evil, you do not have the right 
or the responsibility to follow that example. You have an example of Christ, your Savior. Notice, though, how this strips the the Pharisees of their greatest authority. The ego of their office is undone and undermined. The pride of their position is taken away because Jesus goes on to to declare their hypocrisy. Brothers, good authority, a blessed authority, is one that is not only in word, but in deed. Consider the perfect harmony of these things in the office of Christ. Jesus was not one who came and declared merely with the lips an authority of truth, but Jesus is one who lived out wholly the authority that he had. All throughout the book of Matthew, we've been seeing the the surprise of the crowds as Jesus declared things to them with authority, but it was not merely a shell. It was not merely an office. Jesus walked as he talked. Jesus fed the poor and clothed those who had none. Jesus healed the sick. Jesus called out what is wrong and delivered compassion to those who were oppressed. Jesus lived the law. But notice, Jesus did not do this. Jesus did not walk the talk by making the talk less, but more, if that makes sense. Jesus declared the law not like the Pharisees did, with minutia and qualification and a list of things which will give you certain obligations and take them away with the, take, give them with one hand and take them away with the other. You may do this on this occasion, but if this occasion applies, then you do not have to do this and your conscience is liberated. That's the way that the Pharisees delivered the law. But Jesus said, even in your thoughts and intents, if you look and lust, you have already committed. If you have anger in your heart, you have already sinned. So Jesus takes the law and applies it with all of its rigor, all of its strength, and lives it out to its fullest degree and declares it to be done. But Jesus also is one who does so in compassion. Jesus gives his disciples an easy yoke and a light burden at the same time. This is how Jesus carries his authority. This is how Jesus carries his authority. And so the first point here, this this warning is given in summary to those who follow authority. The warning is this. Though you have authority given to you by God, you need not follow a corrupt example. Good authority is in um, complete harmony with the character of the person and the character of God's law. Though the office may be true, the person may be corrupt. And so Jesus goes on to indict these Pharisees. He says, they practice, or they preach, but they do not practice. And what does this show about their preaching? If someone declares to you, if someone were to stand here, as oftentimes I am guilty of doing, and declare what is right and true, and then do the opposite, what might that show you of the person doing it? That their authority to declare is given based on the pride of their flesh. They treasure more the office, the, 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 um, the, the 
ability and the right to declare what is true to you, and they have no regard for their own guilt under it. It's more about their own name, more about proclaiming the power than it is about living what is right from the heart. They practice, but do not preach. But Jesus' power in preaching is evidenced in the example of his life. What else does he say? They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. The picture here given is the Pharisees meticulously gathering commands, putting them together in in crafty ways and bundling them, as it were, as as a nifty burden and setting them upon the shoulder of the one who would listen and watching them crumble underneath of it. They're clever in their declarations. They're meticulous, but they have no compassion. They are callous. They are callous of soul. Could you imagine a brother or a sister confides in you, they struggle with this or with that, and you think, I, 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 can, I, can, I have a cure. I have a cure. First, I want you to go home and, and write a hundred times, I will not be this way. Every day, for the next month, a hundred times, I will not be this way. Then every time you do that which you have confessed, I want you to bring an extra special offering to church. I want you to pay every time you have committed such a thing so that you will train your mind not to do it and give, give incentives not to, not to sin. And then if, if you still do it, I, I want you to come and publicly confess every time with, with tears the, the minutia of your sin that you might feel the shame of it and help prevent you from doing this. And then if that doesn't work, I want you to then go on and, and give to a particular charity so that you might atone for what you have done. Could you imagine giving such an advice? Have you not taken what the, the, the weak brother who was struggling in one thing, you've, you've tied up a whole host of burdens and bundled them together and given them to someone as laws that they must now keep in addition to that one? This is not how Jesus wields the law. This is not how Jesus gives his commandments. Jesus is full of compassion. Jesus would declare to that brother or sister the right and the truth of the law. He would tell them it is sinful, but then he would say, brother, sister, I have paid for that sin. I have borne that curse. I have not just lifted that burden with my finger. I have paid for it with my life's blood. That sin is upon my shoulder. I carry that load with me to the cross. Go and sin no more. Surely there is many things that we could do practically in, in alleviating the, or helping our, ourselves to avoid certain sins and not making provision for the flesh. But those things ought never to come even close to binding a burden and laying a law upon someone's shoulder that God has not commanded. Brothers and sisters, let us not be callous in our our authority which we might have as a friend or as a brother in our counseling with one another and in our exhortations, but let us be full of compassion, full of the gospel, and quick to confess our sin with one another. What does Jesus say? They do all of their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. 
And just by way of reminder, perhaps you're familiar, but phylacteries are a certain tradition that they would have to to take a a leather box and bind it to themselves, perhaps their waist or between their eyes, and they would put little scrolls, as it were, of of gospel truths in it, literally binding the testimony of God as frontlets between their eyes. And not only would they do this in a very small, but they they would broaden it, and it would be full of many, many scriptures, and all would see the law of God publicly declared, look at how righteous I am. The fringes of their garment similarly were involved in their, in their worship, and the, the longer they were, the more visible they were, the more everyone could look and say, ah, oh, there goes a holy man. Look at the length of their fringes. Very similar, perhaps, to those who have come from a, from a Catholic tradition, uh, praying the rosary. I, I heard an example someone giving of a, of a lady who had a rosary, not merely as something that she could keep in her pocket, but as an entire chain of giant beads that she could pray through so that all would see I'm, I'm praying. But maybe that's, not, maybe that's not our struggle here today. Maybe we struggle in, in this way. We're, we're certainly able to put on a a show, perhaps even before our kids at home, of, of uh, perhaps diligence at work or, or perhaps kindness or that thing, and then we go away and we do the exact opposite. Do you fear what men see most or what God sees? This is what Jesus is in, indicting them for. They do all of their deeds to attract the attention of the pious. Do you care most about what your brothers and sisters here think? I, I really want the people at church to view me as good and religious and, and abiding by God's law, but then at home, it's, it's a raucous mess. And my authority, I, I abuse it. And my submission to my authorities, I, I throw away and I discard. Brothers and sisters, let it not be so. Let it not be so with us. Of all people, we ought to be a people who are able to bear with the failings. Let this be a place where light is, not darkness, where the light of God is able to shine and, and we might confess sin, not hide it. Brothers and sisters, this is where an environment of authority might be, um, might be given and accepted between one another, submitting ourselves to one another out of fear for God. Brothers and sisters, Jesus was not this way. Jesus' aim was not to attract the attention of the pious, of the Pharisees. Jesus didn't care what he looked like before them. Jesus came to save the sick, to show true piety. That is, compassion and love towards those who are suffering. He says, they love the greetings in the marketplace, being called rabbi by others, but you are not to be called rabbi. Their affections are set on their own praise, but where was Jesus' affection set? Do you not know that I must be about my Father's business? Was Jesus, did Jesus come to claim the glory of men, or did he come to die on a cross? Was he born in a castle or in a stable? Was he born, was he, did he descend on high as a conquering king, or was he born a child? He came in a mean estate, brothers. He did not come for the praise and adulation of men. He did not come that his own name would be glorified at first, but that first being humbled, God might raise him up. 
These Pharisees loved the fame of their own name, but Jesus loved his Father. Jesus loved his Father. And so with these marks of of corrupt and ungodly leaders, we we have come through our first three points. We saw the crisis. Jesus gave the warning, and Jesus has now indicted them in their hypocrisy in these five instances of abusive authority. The strength of their speech comes from the pride of their flesh. Their clever demands show their callous soul. The aim of all they do is to attract the attention of the pious. Their affections were set on their own praise. They love the fame of their own name. But now Jesus delivers the paradigm of true spiritual leadership. Look what he says. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ, the greatest among you, shall be your servant. And here I take Jesus to be speaking specifically to his disciples when he says, you, because the operative paradigm here is that of gospel leadership. If Christ came with supreme authority and came humble as a servant, so also Christian authority ought to look like humble servant and service-like authority. Now, I've heard, and this has been um, brought to me, even at times when I've tried to encourage those who are distant from the church of God to come and, and put themselves under authority, I've, I've had this passage uh, brought up to me and say, no, it's, it's wrong to have pastors, it's wrong to have teachers, it's wrong to have any authority. Jesus here is preaching autonomy. Jesus here is preaching just mutual, flat, brother-to-brother relations. And in part, there's, there's truth to that, but in part, there is great error in that. Now, we know that because if you take the apostles' teaching as we ought to, not as somehow against or different or contrary to Christ, but the apostles are, by the Holy Spirit, the divine um, application and carrying forth of Jesus' ministry, we know that it was their custom to appoint elders and leaders in all the churches and to expect those who were under their authority insofar as they held that office, as they, insofar as they taught what is true, to obey and follow their leadership. So what is being taught here then? Is, is Jesus forbidding the calling of anyone teacher, rabbi, or father? Well, first we ought to recognize the context. Jesus here is talking about spiritual authority. So when he forbids calling someone a father, he's not saying children ought to merely call parents by their first name and never say father. That's not what Jesus is talking about. There is, there is an authority that is given appropriate to a child and a parent, and that authority is given by God. He's not talking about um, other, other places of authority. He's not talking about wrong to say that you have a president or that you have a mayor or that you have a boss. Jesus is talking about spiritual authority. But even in that realm, what is he, what is he pressing on? What's the heart of what he's saying? If, it's, if, if Paul can say that God gave to his church as gifts teachers, then surely Jesus is not saying you shall never ever say that you have a teacher other than Christ. 
It is Christ himself who gave to the church teachers. What is he saying, though? He's saying, put no man on the throne as a teacher. No man can teach of himself with authority. No one is, on a, is given full permission to declare all that they would have. And no one can exact obedience from you merely as a man. I think the, the, um, the way this would be phrased in a, in a theological context, Christ alone is Lord of the conscience. And now that's, that's very important for us, brothers and sisters, to understand. That means that no matter who stands here and teaches or who is counseling you as a brother or a sister, you may see, and even rightfully so, the commands of God. One particular example that, that may come up, even amongst us, we, here at this church, we, we aim to uphold church membership as a good and right way of being bound together in love. We think that this is appropriate given, the, given what we can gather about the way in which the local church operated and the commands that God has given to us to be bound together in love. But now, if I go to a brother or to a sister and I say, you must be a member God says you must be a member, and that brother or sister is tempted to do so merely because of the external pressures of wanting to join or because I have said it, and that person cannot give true, heartfelt allegiance and obedience to Christ, then we're asking that person to sin against their conscience. We're asking that person to do and to make us a teacher over and above Christ. There is one Lord. And so while we ought to be humble and, and look to learn from one another and to seek what God has said that our consciences might be taught, we are always teaching as one who is merely pointing to the greater authority, Jesus. So this is, let no man be on the throne as teacher. No one has the authority to declare what is right and wrong. Christ declares what is right and wrong. We are all brothers. Likewise, credit no man with the preeminence of Father. This is what the Pharisees really, this, this whole passage could be summarized in as preeminence. They wanted to be the first, the foremost, the greatest, the ones in front of all, the preeminent ones at the feasts and at the gatherings. And so it was common. They wanted to be called, ah, Father. You could hear, you could hear the allegiance being taken away from the one who is truly the creator, the one from whom all blessings flow and given to another one. Credit no man with the preeminence of Father. And likewise, do not accept the honor as if it is yours. This can apply even to our parenting. As we have spiritual authority over our children, we ought not demand our children's allegiance to us as if we stand in the place of God, as if we mediate to them somehow God to our children. God has given us a parental authority, and my, my children call me dad, and I, I think it's right and appropriate that they understand that I am their father. But now if I went to my, to my child and I, I exacted obedience from them and I, I said, do you know, know that I am declaring to you the righteousness of, of the truth of the world and you ought to call me father all the time? I could set myself up as a supreme uh, a supreme being in their lives. 
and with a young conscience, easily so. To set ourselves up as fathers or mothers which thwart the authority of God. To keep us from pointing always humbly and affectionately to God. Even with our our believing children, brothers and sisters, we are brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ. For instructors, likewise, learn from no man like you learn from Christ. We ought not to instruct, and we've covered this somewhat already, we ought not to instruct as if we make our own disciples, but always instructing and leading and discipling as making disciples of Christ. That is to say, when when you win a soul, when you have a child, when you teach someone, you're not making disciples of yourselves, brothers and sisters. You are making disciples of Jesus Christ. You are pointing them always to Him, the preeminent one, to Him, the teacher, to Him, the Father and instructor, the true rabbi. And so this is, this is the character of Christian authority. And it's, I found it interesting, brothers and sisters, as I, as I was um, thinking about the way in which this paradigm is carried into the epistles where the um, apostles are declaring what are qualifications for leadership and eldership, he's, as he gives them, they're not lists of competencies in abilities. They're lists, primarily I should say, they're lists of character traits, of godly character. In Christian authority, there is not to be given room for hypocrisy. Christian elders and teachers are not to be mere shells of external authority, but to be true, heartfelt disciples of Jesus Christ. To be true followers of righteousness. If you look at the qualifications given for the Old Testament priesthood, it's it's fascinating. They call out, you shall not have a a maimed priest or or with this, this broken appendage or this... It, there, was, there was an external uh, purity about those who had to minister before God to display His holiness. And you'll find very, very little, though I'm not saying that the Old Testament was given that it might be hypocritically born, but it was given primarily as an external um, reality to display God's holiness. And the New Testament comes along, and those who are priests and leaders among God's people, and those who are, are priests and saints, all of God's people, are commended to true spiritual, internal, um, internal consistency with the gospel and the truth of God. This is, this is what I mean by the gospel paradigm of leadership. Here at the end he says this, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In here is the, is the hope of the gospel, is it not? For Christ, being humbled, God has now raised and seated at the right hand of God. Christ did not take, though he could have, though he could have attained glory and held on to it on his own, he did not. Setting aside his robes of splendor and all that he had at the right hand of God, he was born. Born, as it were, fatherless, homeless, without authority, without prestige. But it was God who highly exalted him. It was God who declared from the angels in the pasture to bring bring shepherds to him that they might worship. 
to bring the men from the east with, with gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. It was God who exalted him and seated him. So also, brothers and sisters, let us not seek to pursue greatness now. Do not set our hearts and our affections on the eyes of men, the praise of men, and the glory of men, but let us humble ourselves before one or another that God, that God in Christ might exalt us for the work that he has done and for our love, in, in our love for him. Consider, if you will, and you'll, you'll pardon me if this is not always the place that everyone turns to as a cross-reference to Matthew chapter 23, but you'll remember that, that prophecy in the book of Isaiah that is oftentimes in our minds and our hearts at this time. Think of Isaiah chapter 9, where we read this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice, with righteousness. From this time forth, forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I do not think it's in any way just happenstance that at the end of chapter 22 in Matthew, where Jesus is declaring himself to be both David's son and David's Lord, he goes on to reckon with true authority. And here we see Jesus to be the one who will rule and reign on David's throne. The government of the new heavens and the new earth will sit upon his shoulders. Brothers and sisters, there will be no hypocrisy in that government, no hypocrisy in that authority. All that will be said, all that will be declared, will be done in heart and soul and mind. Not only is it declared by one who is righteous, but it will be obeyed and it will be carried forth. It will be submitted to and wholehearted love and affection and joy for the great authority of Jesus Christ. So I ask you, in this, in this time of reflecting on Advent of Christ coming, I, I wonder if you think about the hope that would often come in the form of a child when you're under the rule of tyranny. In the days of, of kings, we don't see this so much in a democracy, but in the days of kings, if you were living under a tyrant, your hope was that there would be one born who would be a better king. We could think of the days of, of Israel when there were wicked kings and there are stories where, where a king would be taken away and perhaps educated on the side or, or protected from the dynasty. And the, we think King Josiah was, was, was hidden in the temple and instructed by an aunt. And when that child comes and rules on the throne, though he was seven years old, he dawns on them as the morning light because he ruled and reigned in righteousness and justice. 
and so also is the hope of the one who comes and is born as a babe. Because of the seed of the woman, born of Eve, born of the flesh and lineage of Adam, born, as it were, of humankind, is one who will be our hope, our king. Though we, we live in a world that is oppressed, we go, we go from... We go from Biden to, to Trump, or we go from one mayor or another, or one boss to another, and every time it just seems like, is there not someone who could rule with authority? Is there not someone who could stand with authority and with consistency? Do we always have to have someone who ebbs and flows with change? Do we always have to have someone who is so weak in their flesh as they do not do the things that they preach? Do I always have to follow as if it were constraining me to to do something other than the way their life looks like? Is there not one who will be a true authority to us and unto us a child is born? Unto us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulders, brothers and sisters. There is true hope in the gospel and there's hope in this time of year because Christ is our authority. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you were born as a child. That the hope we see in the gospel is absolute. Lord, of the increase of your government, there will be no end. Even in recent times, Lord, we have been privileged and delighted to sit for many years here in this church under good authority where there was not to the, to the uh, great majority as what is humanly possible hypocrisy and yet Lord in, uh, in your providence there was an end but looking to Christ there will be no end there will be no end of your authority the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it we praise you for this. We ask that you would strengthen our hope in this. Lord, give us, give us hearts that would rule, as it were, over our children and over those who are in authority well, in whatever sphere we have authority, whether that be authority merely over our, our beds to keep it made neat and clean as our parents ask, or whether that's authorities over our rooms to keep it clean, or our house, or our household, or our workplace, or in whatever we have authority, Lord, may we rule as those who are mere servants of you, not looking for the prestige, but as walking humbly with you, Lord. We ask in your name. Amen.